Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Jecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by Media Evil's resident Doctor Who expert, Elizabeth Bonneman, to talk about season 20 serial, The King's Demons. So welcome, Elizabeth. Hello. Welcome back. Yes, it's it's great to be back. It's It's been a hot minute. It has, yeah. If anybody is uh, tuning in for the first time or tuning in to one of our Doctor Who episodes for the first time, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you wanted to cover this? Well, I am a student of medieval history. It's what will be my college major when I can afford to go back. I am also kind of an expert on Doctor Who. I've watched a lot of it and I kind of consume and retain the lore. Um, that's, that, is, that is my function in this world. And so this is our fifth serial that we've covered for the podcast. We've previously done The Time Meddler, The Time Warrior, The Mask of Mandragora, and The Visitation. Yes. So now we are up to The King's Demons, season 20, came out in 1983. And we are once again joined by Pete Davison as the fifth doctor. Yep. And uh, this is this is the first time that Sarah has seen a repeat appearance by the same actor playing the doctor. Exactly. Based on my experience thus far, you could almost say like, oh, yes, it's a different doctor in every serial. Who knows? No, this is <laughs> Peter Davison is the doctor from technically 81 to 84, although he regenerates in like the last minute of the last episode of 81 so so really it's 82 through 84 okay but the visitation was 82 this is 83 so it's all within there and we also have a repeat companion janet fielding as tegan yes tegan lasted for most of the fifth doctor's run barring a brief gap that wasn't really a gap because she leaves at the end of season 19 regrets leaving because normal mortal life is boring in comparison and then at the very start of season 20 has a chance running with the doctor and nissa again and joins up with with them again oh and that's nice and you can definitely get the sense at the point that we're at now that tegan has reached a point where clearly she this is what she would like to do that she clearly is more interested in traveling around with the doctor than uh, whatever else she might have in her life yeah yeah this is this is she's happy here yeah it also stars uh, mark strickson as turlo another companion whom i have never seen before who is a tall red-headed man with a kind of english like that uppity school but vibe really that he's not really that tall but uh otherwise yeah that's that's Maybe a, he's just taller than other people in I this suppose. particular yeah. He's episode. not as tall as Peter Davison. That's mm. that's the that's where it really I guess where I'm setting the bar. Fair, fair. But you basically mostly see him you mostly see him next to all of the medieval people, I feel like. Oh, true. Yeah, that's that's fair. They they did cast a lot of short actors in this one. It's Yeah. Yeah, so maybe an, that's an it. Interesting choice. I'm not sure that that was a conscious choice, but it is a but it is a thing that happened. Yeah, so maybe he's just sort of gangly looking. He does, uh, <laughs> yes, that's true. He's got teenage boarding school boy vibe. Yes. And which which makes sense to, because the doctor picked him up at a boarding school in England. Makes sense. 
It also has Anthony Inley as the master. Yes. I have things to say about the master, but I'll wait until we finish the cast listing. Sounds good. And I will just say, uh, just to double check at that, am I correct in my assumption that the master, that this is not the master's first appearance? Definitely not. He's, this is his, oh gosh, I've lost count at this point. This is the, let's see, fifth appearance as of Anthony Ainley as the master, but he's been played by other actors before that too. Okay. Interesting. Cause, uh, cause yes, cause clearly I feel, I felt like he was presented in such a way that we are supposed to know who he is. He's got, he's got a lot of history with the doctor. He's got a lot of personal history with the doctor and uh, okay. this is his first time in appearing in season 20, but over the course of seasons 18 and 19, he had like five more appearances, mm-hmm. no, four more, sorry. Yes. That's, that's numbers. This is his fifth. So okay. four prior. Yeah. Yes. I I have it in my brain now. And the last person that I'll mention from the cast is Gerald Flood as Chameleon, who is an android, I guess, who we'll discuss more. Yes. Subsequently. I'll I'll discuss him more when we get to when we find out he's an android. Right. But I'd like to take this opportunity uh, before we get into the recap of the serial to give a recap of the master and also turbo right. the master is a recurring villain there are there are lots of like recurring evil aliens in doctor who like mm-hmm. the daleks the cybermen the santarans but in terms of a singular villain the master is by far the most prominent hmm. so he was originally uh introduced opposite the third doctor during the unit years where he was a recurring menace played by an actor named Roger Delgado. And he was like a very frequent recurring menace. Like there was in season eight, he appeared in like every episode that season and then kept being like a frequent recurring menace up until he suddenly wasn't because Roger Delgado died in a car accident. Right. So then he just sort of stopped appearing and they had to come up with a way to explain like, they, they wanted to bring the master back, but they couldn't bring back Roger Delgado because he's dead. Um, mm-hmm. So he doesn't come back until so the fourth Doctor's era. 1976 is the deadly assassin, mm-hmm. which is the one right after Sarah Jane leaves. Okay. And so this is the serial that, it, that establishes that Time Lords have a regeneration limit. They can only regenerate mm-hmm. 12 times, but the Time Lord High Council can grant them additional like sets of regenerations and so the master is on his last regeneration and so he's trying to steal for himself a new set oh interesting and at this point like he's he's kind of like looks like a rotting zombified corpse type guy Mm -hmm. and in that episode he's played by peter pratt and the doctor manages to thwart him and then he doesn't resurface again until 1981's the keeper of trocken Mm-hmm. Where uh, again, it's again, it's the incarnation that the fans uh, have nicknamed the Crispy Master, mm-hmm. uh, but this time he's played by Jeffrey Beavers. The Doctor and Adric, who is his companion at that point, team up with a local scientist from the planet of Trocken named Tremus, who is played by Anthony Ainley and Tremus's daughter Nissa, mm-hmm. and uh, they manage to stop the master from seizing the power of the keeper of Trocken, who is this very, very powerful individual. But at the very end of the serial, 
the master still got some of that power, which he is able to use to pull a body snatch on Tremus. Ooh. Uh, right. So, so he has body snatched Nissa's dad. Uh, oh, that's sad. Yeah. And then Nissa joins up with the doctor in her search for her father, who she doesn't realize has been body snatched. She soon finds out, though, because the next episode, the next serial is Legopolis, which is, this is still the fourth doctor. A, an Australian air hostess named Tegan Jovanka wanders into the TARDIS thinking it's a real police box. They take off with her inside without realizing that she's inside. And then, and so that gives us the TARDIS crew for the last serial we did, The Visitation, mm-hmm. which is right. Nissa and Tegan. So the Master uh, accidentally destroys like a tenth of the universe because he fiddles with a device that was preventing the f- entropy from causing the galaxy to fall apart. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they manage to stop him. Actually, the Master teams up with them to stop them to stop it from destroying anymore because he wants to rule the universe, and you can't rule the universe if there's no universe to rule. But then the Master tries to hold the rest of the universe for ransom. And, oh dear. Yeah. And so uh, the doctor stops him, but sacrifices his own life in the process and mm-hmm. regenerates into the fifth doctor. Okay. Uh, and then as he's regenerating, in, a- after his regeneration, like he's, he's still recovering from that. So they go to this planet called Castrovalva, which is, the fr- which is the title of the fifth doctor's first serial to try and like help him recuperate. But uh, something is very w- wrong with Castrovalva. And it turns out the master has beaten them there and is trying to mm. basically trap them in an M.C. Escher painting. Fun. They managed to stop him. As far as they know, they, uh, they've they trapped him there, but the Master has a talent for, like, getting out of positions that, like, it's like, oh, no one could possibly escape from this, and then it's, and then, like, a right. few, and then, like, a few serials later, waha, I've escaped! You'll never find out how! Um, <laughs> then you have a few more serials where the Master doesn't show up, including The Visitation, which we've already mm-hmm. re- reviewed. Right. Um, then there's Black Orchid, they go to 1925. Earthshock, Adric sacrifices himself to stop the Cybermen from destroying all life on Earth. And then Time Flight, where the Doctor is trying to take Nyssa and Tegan somewhere nice to help them, you know, have a, have like a, like a nice peaceful environment to grieve Adric, but instead they land at Heathrow in 1981, which is where they were trying to go the whole season. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. And then they get roped into this whole business with a missing Concorde jet that flew through a time warp. Mm -hmm. It's all complicated, but uh, the master is behind this too. And uh, at the end of that serial, they manage to strand him on the planet of Zarephas, which as far as they know at the start of, at the start of this serial is where he is. Right. He's stuck on Zarephas with a, with a broken TARDIS, which he's apparently managed to repair by now. Spoilers. So jumping forward a couple more serials, the doctor leaves Tegan behind at Heathrow because that's where he thinks she wants to be because that's Mm -hmm. where they were trying to get her the whole time. Right. But by this point, Tegan has decided, no, I want to keep traveling with the doctor because this is more fun than, you know, working as a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. It's really like a flight attendant, but in time. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And Uh, also less annoying passengers. Yeah. So at the start of season 20... Tegan is in Amsterdam, where she has a chance run-in with the Doctor and Nyssa again. And so mm-hmm. she joins up with them again. In between, it's implied that the Doctor and Nyssa have had several adventures without Tegan, which get explored mm-hmm. further in the audio dramas. But but in terms of the show, it's like it's almost like Tegan never left. 
Yeah. Except, except she got a haircut. So then there's a couple more adventures. And then we get to Modern Undead, where there's, there's some complicated timey-wimey stuff going on, but they meet this kid named Turlow. Turlow is, well, he's, a, he's an alien noble from the planet of Trion who got mm-hmm. exiled because, of, because he was on the wrong side of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's stuck living at, he's, not, he's stuck living as a student at a boarding school on Earth in 1983. <laughs> A planet that he finds incredibly dull. He hates it there. And so he's approached by this by this mysterious figure known as the Black Guardian, who's like, who's like, if you make a deal with me, I I will make sure that you get off this planet. And the, and Turlo's like, yes, I'll do anything. And 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 the Black Guardian's like, I want you to kill the doctor. And Turlo's like, oh, I don't know if I can kill anyone. But then we have this whole arc where it's like, it's like the Black Guardian keeps like pressuring Turlo to like travel with the doctor and, and kill him when he gets the opportunity. Turlo can never bring himself to do it. And uh, ultimately uh-huh. at the end of the three serials that are known as the Black Guardian trilogy, he manages to take the weapon that the Black Guardian wants him to kill the doctor with and kills the Black Guardian instead. Mm-hmm. Um, although they're not sure that the Black Guardian will stay dead because, right. you know, he's he's one of those villains who like comes back to the kind who doesn't necessarily stay dead. Right. Exactly. Also in the second serial of the black guardian trilogy terminus, they go to this space station where it's ravaged by this plague and Nyssa in the, in the end opts to stay behind because she thinks she's worked out a cure for this plague, but she wants to stay Mm -hmm. and, you know, make sure the cure gets implemented. Right. So that's, that's where she's gone. Okay. Um, and so at the end of the last uh, of the past serial enlightenment turlo has defeated the black guardian and the doctor's like well where shall we go now and and the and turlo's like well can can we go back to my home planet i'd like to see my home planet again and that's where they're trying to go at the at the start uh-huh. of the king's demons mm-hmm. but they land in on earth in england 1215 instead and that is where that is where we pick up as usual the tardis doesn't go quite where it's supposed to go uh no <laughs> <laughs> then we end up in the king's demons so i'll begin the enumeratio section with just a brief recap the doctor and his companions travel to 1215 where they meet king john or so they think until the doctor realizes that he is in fact an imposter they must then foil the plot of the master who is using the android chameleon to impersonate john as part of a plot to prevent him from signing the magna carta and thus undermine democracy I'll have a lot to say about that as we move along forward, but we can uh, start with the episode itself and our our vague medieval times kind of music with which we begin. Yeah, that's that is that is a good description for it. It's like it's the most generic medievalist music that you could imagine. Like there's like somebody strumming on a lute. There's a violin, uh-huh. but we don't see who's playing that. Right. It's just generic. Right. King John, meanwhile, is very mad, and in particular, he is very mad at his current host, Lord Ranulf, because he has failed to contribute a sufficient amount towards the king's crusade, and he then has his champion challenge Ranulf's son, who I want to say is named Hugh. That sounds right. I, I, I watched this on Friday, and it was a name that, that, that I, I just kept thinking of him as Ranulf's son. 
So I yeah, I don't think they actually necessarily ever said his name over the course of the episode, but in the cast list there's somebody named Hugh, so I'm going to kind of just assume sure. for the sake of argument sure. that that's Hugh. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Hugh now has to battle the king's champion in a duel to the death, which goes back and forth between looking like a duel to the death and looking like just a real casual everyday joust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like they're breaking lances on each other's shields, and it's like, how's this supposed to kill anyone? Right, and this it's is this not, weird... This is not a duel, this is sports. Yeah, it looks like a very just polite tournament, essentially until the exact moment that he, at some point, uh, the champion unhorses Hugh and then comes over at him with a sword, basically. Yeah, the champion, Sir Gilles Estram, who is a... Who's the finest swordsman in France, we are told. Yes. He's about to, I guess, demonstrate that by stabbing a man who is lying on the ground unarmed, like all fine swordsmen. Yep. But they are interrupted in this uh, battle at some point, however, though, with the sudden arrival of the TARDIS. Yes. Which, you know, it just materializes in full view of everyone, which understandably is a bit of a shock. Yeah. Yeah. To everybody except John. John is extremely chill about this. Yeah, that's true. Like, that is... I think that's the first hint that something is up. Because, like... Yes. King John is like, has King John met the Doctor before? Like, that's that's not out of the question. The Doctor has uh, met royalty before they've met him. Yeah. There's there's a whole bit later on. The Doctor meets Queen Elizabeth I, who is already calling for his head because of something that the Doctor insulted her, but he hasn't done that yet, so he doesn't know what he's done. <laughs> right, yeah. Travel. So at first, yeah, I wondered if it was something along those lines that he, he greets them, he calls them his demons, he then asks us of Tegan, can this be Lilith, which I'll talk about more later. And in general, yeah, it just seems very, very relaxed about this whole situation. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I guess it's nice to know that somebody is taking their side, question mark? Right. I guess, yeah. The doctor, I guess, takes advantage of uh, this surprisingly warm welcome to encourage John to let the kid... Uh, not be killed. Hugh, rather than being grateful, is extremely grumpy about the fact that he is not going to be stabbed to death. Yeah, something something honor, something something infringement. Yeah. Ranulf, in contrast, is quite happy at the moment that the doctor has kept his son from being executed, which will begin the first of Ranulf's repeated back and forths in his opinions on the doctor. Yeah. Ranulf is a very inconstant man. He is. He he just seems like somebody who really has trouble making up his mind about things. Yeah. Which I think is what John was yelling at him about at the very True. start. <laughs> True. John, or faux John, or whatever, is not wrong. Yeah. Tegan is not entirely enjoying the castle atmosphere. She complains about how cold it is. And uh, I think the doctor says, well, you have to like eat more in order to, uh, to not be so cold. My commentary as well is that this castle needs way more tapestries to keep everybody warm. But, you know, sure. nobody's listening to my advice, apparently. Yeah. Probably because I was not born yet when this episode came out. That's also true. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's understandable. 
They realize that the current date is March 4th, 1215, and this is our second clue that something a bit weird is going on, because the doctor realizes that on this specific date, the king should not be at this random castle, but rather he should be in London taking the Crusader's Oath. Yes. It is it is unusual that the, that the TARDIS told the doctor the specific date. That's not like the TARDIS. Hmm, usually yeah. The, usually the doctor has to, like, go out and find a newspaper. Right. Not that there are newspapers. Well, true, but but that's that's his usual, like, go outside, find context clues. That's, that's what right. he usually has to do. Yes, and especially because, you know, we're also at the moment where somebody wrote the date down the way they would write the date down would be like, it is the 4th of the Knowns of March in what would, I assume, be helpful for the doctor. I, I don't know how his Latin yeah. I mean, Roman dating doc- is. The doctor would understand that, but it's it's a matter of finding it written down. Right. Like, I don't think they had calendars, like not like on like a hanging on the wall calendar. No, there would be liturgical calendars that would have a because True. that would have the dates written out in various places. So he could attend a church service and see something like that that might kind of indicate what day it is. But, but he would have to go out of his way to find that. Yes. So it's very convenient that the TARDIS just informed him that it's this date, which he then know, happens to know offhand is the date when, in fact, John is supposed to be somewhere else. Yeah. And that this is sketchy. Right. Tegan and the Doctor have some disagreements. Uh, Tegan actually says, no wonder he was forced to sign the Magna Carta. There must have been something in it about overheating. And the Doctor then insists that, oh, John was not forced to sign the Magna Carta, which I'll discuss. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a whole several pages of the notes later on about the Magna Carta. Yes. Yes. I'll just say the the doctor has a very optimistic view about King John in general. Yeah. I mean, this this incarnation of the doctor in particular tends to have perhaps unjustified optimistic views about a lot of things. Fair. Fair. Randolph is now informed that the king is going to take his wife, Isabella, as a hostage against his good behavior. Randolph's son, meanwhile, is also, is now under the impression that the doctor and his companions are, in fact, bad and on the wrong side. So he is, uh, he attempts to torture Turlo in their just casual hallway Iron Maiden that they've got. Yeah, it's just, it's just there. It's just there. Uh, uh-huh. you, you, you just have to have one just kind of decorated every hallway. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They run into the Kingsmen who are taking away Isabella. They take you with them as well. Yeah. So Renolf at this point confronts the doctor and then decides to believe that they are friends. And the doctor suggests to him that the king is in fact an imposter. And Renolf again, he's just so inconstant. He's like, you suggest sorcery, so you must be a sorcerer. Yeah, and the doctor's like, no, no, you just trust me. Like, I, I'm not a sorcerer. I just know what's going on. Yeah, and he's like, no, I, I was like, I didn't say I'm the one who, like, betrayed him and who, like, replaced him with an imposter. I said somebody did. And he's like, oh, good point, I guess. Yeah. So, real or fake, I do not, I would not blame the king for not liking this guy because he is really annoyingly inconstant, as we said before. Yeah. We also then have a new arrival who corroborates some of these suspicions in the person of Randolph's cousin, Jeffrey DeLacy who was just in London that morning, also signing the Crusader's Oath, and the king was there. So how did the king 
you know, beat him to this castle where he's apparently been for several days when he was supposed yeah. to be in London. Yeah, so so Jeffrey Jeffrey's seen the real King John, so he knows something's up. But before he's able to, like, tell anyone this, he is we- waylaid by Sir Gilles, who is clearly on the side of fake King John. Yes. He takes the doctor up, and while Turlo and Hugh and Isabella are sort of sniping at each other in the dungeon, the king's men come down, grab their casual hallway Iron Maiden, and take that away with them. Yeah. And I, I love Turlo's line at this point. Like, Hugh thinks that, like, Turlo is some kind of demon. And he's like, why don't you call upon the powers of hell? And Turlo's like, I could. And so could you. And you'd probably have a better chance at it. <laughs> right. We also have Tegan actually even suggests when the doctor is musing over why John calls them his demons. Uh, uh, Tegan is like, maybe he's the devil. I don't know. Yeah. Like, something's up with this guy, so... Yeah. They have this song also that they are singing about their apparently planned crusade, <laughs> which has, like, such unmedieval lyrics. Like, it feels like a parody, like a modern song about the crusades. It's like, it, we have a total war against the Saracens. We abhor. Um, <laughs> and also, King John cannot sing. <laughs> No, no, he's he very cannot. bad at it. But it's it's one of those like he cannot sing, but he is the king, so everyone has to be polite about it. Right, about him singing this weird ass song in his shitty singing voice. Yeah. Which uh, ultimately, I will say, the song, given that it seems to be just King John's song, it can be explained away by the fact that he is an imposter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> The Iron Maiden apparently was intended to be additional entertainment, and specifically that Cousin Jeffrey was meant to be placed inside. Ranolf is not very happy about this because it's his cousin, and also he went to London to obey the king. And then John's like, well, he wasn't there. And then Jeffrey's like, no, you were there. You were just there. And John's like, no? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, I've been here, like, and everyone can attest to this. So, like, he's got them there, but also... <laughs> right, yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely definitely getting a bit messy. The doctor, meanwhile, insults Guy for having bad taste and is challenged, and at this point he is informed that he's set to be the best swordsman in France, and the doctor's like, well, a good thing we're in England. Yeah, the doctor, the doctor also suggests, it's like, why are we using the Iron Maiden? Wouldn't boiling in oil be more appropriate? Right. Which I think is really just a, just a stall tactic. Yeah, like, because then um, you have to take all this time to boil the oil. Yeah, but King John's like, ooh, we haven't had a good boiling in oil in months. <laughs> right. So then he ends up in this sword fight against Gilles, which, hmm. The doctor is not totally holding his own for the most part. Yeah, the, the doctor, the doctor has, the doctor's used swords before, but he's been better at it. Like yeah, saw, he's not we excellent. Saw, we saw the fourth doctor wielding a sword back in the Mask of Mandragora, and he did a pretty decent job there. Yeah, so I, I don't know what is going on here in particular, but he seems pretty mediocre. Yeah. But he does manage to just barely pull off a win, at which point Gilles changes into somebody else entirely. Yes, uh, uh, and uh, and the doctor realizes that 
oh, it's the master. Because apparently his voice didn't give it away. And I knew that I knew that Gilles was the master from the moment he opened his mouth. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Tony Ainley has a very distinctive voice. Oh, even with, okay. even with a fake French accent. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, so watching this not being as familiar with the master, I just see him change face. And the doctor clearly knows who he is and says, oh, you've escaped from Zarephus. And I'm just like, I, I guess I'm supposed to know who this guy is? Yeah, yeah, the master, well, at the end of time flight, the, doc, the doctor stranded Zarephus, stranded uh, the master on Zarephus with the busted TARDIS. And this is, this is the first uh, indication the doctors have that the master escaped. Right. Apparently the doctor was very naive. Yeah. And the doctor's like, that's the end. That's the like part one cliffhanger. But then the part two like opens and the doctor's like, no, I knew you were evil. If even if I didn't know it was you like. Right. Right. I, I was on to your plan. I don't know what you're even if I didn't realize it was your plan. Right. Yeah, these, these two have history. It's it's one of those, like, childhood friends, but then one turns, like, super evil kind of a deal. Okay. Yeah. Okay, they, one of those, yeah. They, they grew up together. and Interesting. And they That's were, just like... just little baby time lords. Yeah. They, they, were, they were best friends right up until the Master's like, I want to conquer the universe. And the, and the Doctor's like, no. <laughs> That's kind of the basis for their whole falling out. How's work for time lords like do they have a period when they were like children yeah yeah okay it was a long time ago like they're both multiple centuries old by this point okay so yeah so that is the uh the stopping point for the first uh, episode and we then move into the second uh we get uh, you know a little bit of a repeat at the last minute and then uh, lead into the conversation between this guy who is the master and the doctor John decides at this point that uh, uh, his that because he lost, Xi uh, should now be placed into the Iron Maiden and uh, seems to not notice that he's now just a different person with a different face. Yeah, no, no one seems to notice this. Like, the, the Master's face transforms from, like, this honestly pretty good disguise with, like, a red beard to, like, the classic black goatee that the Master is known for. And, like... No one but the doctor reacts. Right. He is very clearly a different person from the person he was three seconds ago. And everybody seems completely fine with this, except for the doctor, which I find, like, is he supposed to have, I mean, so we obviously we know what's going on with John. Yeah. But. The doctor does have some, like, psychic abilities. Like, he's. Okay. One of his, one of his, like, favorite weapons is hypnotizing his enemies, like, like, I'm mm-hmm. master and you will obey me. Yeah. So, so I'm like, maybe there's some of that going on, but still. It still, still doesn't seem, like, impressive. Yeah. Also, the weapon he's holding is his other uh, go-to weapon. It's this thing that he uses to kill people by shrinking them into little dolls. Fun. But he doesn't actually use it. So mm. he's, he's killed lots of people in the past with it, including Tegan's aunt. That's fun. Right. Tegan has personal beef with this guy, too, because he's killed her aunt. Yeah, fair. Yeah, so he does that. He he just, you know, shrink them into a little doll. Um, I'm sad I didn't get to see that. That sounds creepy and fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. John tells uh, the doctor that he can either send 
Xi, the master, whoever this gentleman is, into the Iron Maiden or Jeffrey DeLacy. The master ends up being the one who is sent into the Iron Maiden, but he just seems to disappear, disappear and then materialize elsewhere. Uh, because which, the, it, it turns out the Iron Maiden is the master's TARDIS. Which... I will talk about this later, but actually arguably improves historicity in some way. Yeah. The Master has, has a artist which has a chameleon circuit work. Right. Like looking just like being stuck looking like a 1963 London police box. It can look like anything, even though the Master himself does not have the best taste in what to turn it into. Right. Like it's like oh I wonder what this uh, what this out of place grandfather clock is doing here right this out of place Ionic column <laughs> yeah exactly and as the Iron Maiden is in fact a very good example of that in that as I will discuss later there is no evidence of it being a real thing in the 13th century as opposed to a thing that people in like the 19th century onwards thought was a thing in the 13th century. So I do like the idea that he just like read some shitty coffee table book from the 20th century or whatever about medieval torture devices and then picked that as what the TARDIS should look like, not not knowing that it's like not actually a thing. Yeah. And then it's just this whole castle of people who like are too polite to be like, what the fuck is that? True. Yeah. <laughs> Point out, he also turned it into a blue police box specifically to confuse the doctor. Mm. That's never good either. Anyway. Yes. At this point... The doctor now announced, or the doctor just now uh, gets to be the king's champion, I guess. So that's fun. Which, not entirely sure why, but okay, I guess. Right. The master then emerges from his Iron Maiden TARDIS and tells the people who are hanging out in the dungeon that the doctor is a demon and he's bewitched the king in order to encourage the barons to rebel. And Tarlow's like, uh, he's obviously lying. And uh, the others are like, I don't know? Yeah, the others seem like real, they surprisingly willing to like obey the master really quick. Like I, it's, it's kind of weird that they trust him that quickly, honestly. Yeah, I mean, is that like a psychic control thing again? Because they- Maybe there's some the of that going on because yeah. it's, it, 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 it really doesn't make sense. It doesn't, no. Meanwhile, John knights the doctor, and Jeffrey and Randolph are discussing him. And <laughs> at this point, Randolph is on the doctor's side. So he's like, he comes as a friend. And then Jeffrey's like, when does he come? And then, Je and then Randolph is just like, from Aquatine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which I just find hilarious is something that he just like, I assume just like completely pulled out of nothing. Yeah, I mean, like earlier they, they do comment on like, it's like the doctor and his companions are dressed strangely for 1215, which the doctor is dressed strangely for almost anything. Always. Right. There, there is one serial where he does end up playing cricket in 1925, but otherwise mm. he's out of place at all times. Right. <laughs> and uh, otherwise you've got, you know, these two kids from the 80s and like... Yeah. And like Turlow's like school uniform suit like would, would put him like appropriate for several centuries but not this one um, right and tegan's outfit yeah. is very 80s right so yes i find it very funny that they just kind of pick a place at random which is really not that far away and also not that culturally distant in certain ways like 
I mean, it's, it's where John's mother is from and she's dead by now, but still. True. Yeah, I find that to be a, an entertaining choice. But the doctor then orders Jeffrey to be arrested and demands that he lead him to the dungeon, which for us is obviously a plan for him to then, you know, release get, everybody. yeah, release everybody and get to chat with Jeffrey on his own. The king, meanwhile, decides that this has been enough entertainment for one evening and that he is going to bed. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. They get down to the dungeon and find the Iron Maiden TARDIS and uh, confirm that the master has apparently set up an imposter's John in order to rob the world of the Magna Carta, which would clearly ruin everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the, the whole course of Western civilization will no longer take place. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Sure. Yep. Like, this This plan is so bad you'd think the monks Right. There's a rumor. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but there's a rumor that the monk was supposed to be the villain of this serial. Ooh, interesting. And, and honestly, based on what I know of the monk's modus operandi and mm-hmm. the masters, it would make more sense for it to be the monk. But you're not wrong. But I, but I guess like the monk is a bit of a a deep cut to pull out of their hat since no one's seen him since on screen since 1965. And the master Mm -hmm. has been like the go-to guy since 71. Is there definitive proof that they're not actually the same person? Not definitive. More that there's, no, no, there is. Cause there's like, there's a few audio dramas where they both appear and, uh, and they don't like each other either. (laughs) (laughs) No, but nobody seems to like each other very much. Yeah. There's, there's like a, there's like an audio drama where like the doctor's out of commission. One of his, one of his companions teams up with the monk to stop the master and the other com- teams up with the master to stop the monk. Um, <laughs> gets very confused. <laughs> so, okay. So they're not the same Pete, but the same person, but they apparently at least at this moment seem to have perhaps equally ill-conceived uh, plans for changing the course of world history. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor plans that he'll go to London and warn the real king and bring the imposter to expose the plot. Meanwhile, in five damn seconds, the master has convinced Ranolf that actually he's really the one who's a good guy and that all of his men should be put at the master's command. Which Ranolf agrees to very quickly. So quickly. So oh, fast. Like, <sighs> uh, it's, I, that man, I can't. <laughs> Jeffrey is sent off to London, but is shot, but is uh, shot like pretty much immediately as he is leaving. Yeah. So also, rest I, in have peace, a, Jeffrey. I, I do have a question. Crossbows, 1215 England. Is that accurate? They did actually have crossbows by the 12th century. Okay. So right. that's, that's accurate then. Cool. They were not the most popular in England, but they weren't unknown. And especially because there is a decent amount of back and forth, obviously, between England and France. Uh, I'll, I'll allow it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the crossbow, it's okay. It's acceptable. Yeah. Tegan goes into the TARDIS, hoping to find a distraction. The others go in search of Jeffrey. And the doctor finds John, who now looks a whole lot like a robot. Yeah, he still sounds like John. He's still singing. Mm-hmm. The, he's still singing badly. Um, he's still singing this dumb fucking song about the Crusades, yeah. which is the least medieval thing I've ever heard. 
it's this it's this animatronic prop like it there's no yeah. person in there it is some fairly ambitious animatronics for 1983 and they never quite worked uh uh-huh. like chameleon was supposed to become a recurring character but he only appears in one serial after this one and it's the one where they like write him out of the show <clears throat> Well, and the reason for this is they built this in this like ambitious animatronic prop. And then this is the end of season 20. Between this and season 21, the one man who knew how to operate the prop died and didn't have time to write down <laughs> uh, any notes on how to use this thing. I guess that explains uh, one of the reasons why you might want to get rid of it. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> So chameleons, yeah. everything about chameleon never really goes anywhere past this. Right. And it's also like, I can obviously see how chameleon would be useful as a plot device, but also the he's controlled by just somebody concentrating really hard. Yeah. That, he, he, he feels like a liability, frankly. Yeah, because it seems like, I mean, it seems like the doctor is going to really have to expend a lot of effort on controlling Chameleon. Yeah. In order to make him work for whatever they need him to. Especially when they go up against the master, which in Chameleon's only other appearance, they go up against the master again. (laughs) There you go. I understand why we lost Chameleon. And also, I mean, of... I mean, the companions really do have, like, personalities, and the point of Chameleon is sort of that he doesn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. As far as as far as companions go and companions with personality go, like Chameleon is like right there at the bottom. So I like by definition really, he does not have a personality of his own. He just is his personality is determined by whoever is controlling him essentially. Pretty much. Which is why at the moment he's like an especially dickish sort of quirky version of King John. Uh-huh. <laughs> the other reason they never really use him past this point is because of the curse. The fact that everyone who's really tried to do anything with Chameleon met with a sudden end. Um, mm. It's completely coincidental, I'm sure. But it, but even so, who wants to tempt fate like that? Yeah, yeah, fair. So so even in so even in like audio dramas and novels, he's hardly ever used. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Jeffrey is recovered and brought back to the castle, where before dying, he speaks the incredibly ambiguous, the king, doctor, seek, which could mean five million different (laughs) things. It is so unhelpful. It is. I know uh, he's dying, but still. Yeah, it's very not helpful. Also, at this point, like, people are running around holding holding people at sword point and turlo's like why is everyone threatening me for no reason what have i done to deserve this right yeah which Poor like, turlo. in in earlier se- serials where he was like collaborating with the black guardian and acting suspicious mm. that would be fair but now he's yeah. like officially solidified himself as a good guy and he's still being treated like this and he's and he's understandably sick of it you can't blame him yeah. We learn about more about the master's plan, which is basically that he just wants to sow chaos and then run everything, I guess. I guess that that's is, the plan. To be fair, like, it is a dumb plan, but it is like, but the master is also an insane man who think who, like, this is very much 
his whole shtick. So right. at least it's on brand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess. So yeah, that's really his whole plan. And then he's like, ha ha ha, you've only contributed to my plan because everybody already thinks that the king and his brothers are the devil's work. And so you as demons will only discredit like fake John further and then I win. Uh-huh, yeah. Sure? That's, that's a plan. I'm not sure he thought this one through. Right. Then again, I'm never sure that the master really thinks his plans through that far. <laughs> right. So Randolph comes in and he tells Foe John that Jeffrey or that Jeffrey's dead, and John says, "You know, go get, go fetch the boiling oil." And the doctor and master then engage in a battle of wills over chameleon. And Randolph arrives just to see John flicking in and out of existence, and is like, "What the fuck?" understandably and the master is like no just kill the doctor but then the doctor wins grabs chameleon who's now tegan and rushes into the tardis with them and turlow yeah like and (laughs) i think what really turned the duel and i do like this uh this one point is the master lost his concentration when he told ranulf to kill the doctor and mm, right and so that is that is what allowed the doctor to get the upper hand and it was just exceptionally good timing that tegan landed the tardis like in that room at that moment yes and that also i think corroborates my theory which is that the reason ranolf in addition to just being a generally inconstant person is so acquiescent to the master's commands. My theory of that is that it's because he actually had to break concentration even more because he's like semi-mind controlling that does sound That does sound like something that would be true, yeah. And as I said, it explains why Randolph is the way he is. Yeah, it does. <laughs> is annoyed obviously complains of medieval those medieval misfits yeah he goes back to his iron maiden tardis but we learned that the doctor has placed the ooh compressor yeah the the thing the the the, the tissue compressor the thing that he uses to, to shrink people the doctor has has used it really quick to uh sabotage the master's tardis in such a way that now the master cannot steer his TARDIS in the same way that the Doctor Whoops. was never able to steer his TARDIS. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> With that, he is now generally in trouble. And then meanwhile, back on our TARDIS, uh, the Doctor tells Chameleon that he can stay. Tegan is not on board with this. The Doctor is like, well, I could just take you home if you're so annoyed about this whole situation. And then Tegan's like, come on, no, we're obviously not doing that. And... The doctor apparently never thought that she really wanted to go home because the course was always set for their new destination, which is the Eye of Orion. Yeah, he's taking them on vacation, yeah. uh, which I'm sure will go completely smoothly and uneventfully. Oh, yes. It's not like the, it's not like the next episode is the 20th anniversary special or anything. Oh, wait. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, now I do kind of want to watch that, actually, and, uh, and see what ends up happening next. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good one. They don't do anything medieval, but <laughs> I can finally break my I've only seen medieval episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's called the Five Doctors, and like all oh, all the prior doctors make appearances. Although Tom Baker opted not to return, so they just use archive footage for him. But yeah, interesting. But still, yeah. Hmm. 
So yeah, that is the episode. It is, I think, a somewhat abrupt ending. Like it, I mean, to me, this serial did feel a bit short. Like it sort of felt in some ways like this would be the kind of lull and temporary victory before something else went wrong. Well, <laughs> the next thing that goes wrong is uh, the five doctors. And uh, Fair enough. Where, yes. where, where the doctor and his prior selves get into so much trouble that the Time Lord High Council summon the master and tell him to go help the doctor and if he does they'll give him more all those regenerations he wanted interesting which doesn't end up happening other stuff happens Uh that but even so like yeah yeah the The doctor clearly must end up getting more regenerations right because we're at the moment we're up to definitely more than 12 aren't we yep the doctor gets more regenerations in the 2013 Christmas special, The Time of the Doctor. But the Master also got more regenerations at some point during the time skip between the movie and the new series. Okay. Because in the movie, he's he's there too, but he's still doing the whole body snatching routine. Right. He, he snatches the body of an ambulance driver played by Eric Roberts. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I guess a way to get out of the not getting regenerations thing, yeah. sort of. So, yeah. so hmm. Anthony Ainley lasts for the rest of the classic series, so the rest of the 80s. Okay. He's actually the villain of the last classic serial, even. Hmm. And then you have Eric Roberts in the movie. And then I think there's another guy who does who does some audio dramas, and also they bring back Eric Roberts and Jeffrey Beavers, who was the second Crispy Master for mm-hmm. other audios. When he first appears in the new series, he's played by Sir Derek Jacobi. Ooh, um, interesting. Who, who then regenerates into John Sim, and then Michelle Gomez, and uh, most recently, Sacha Dowen. Hmm. And I don't think, I think maybe we, we have an episode somewhere in our future that has the Michelle Gomez incarnation. But okay. otherwise, I don't think we, as in watching things for media evil, are going to see the master again. Okay. Because I'll have to I'll have to watch other Doctor Who if I want to learn more about the master. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so at this point I think we can get into the Vera at Falso, where we talk about what they got right and wrong. The Material culture, I would say, is a bit of a mixed bag in a lot of ways. I wish there had been tapestries in the castle. That music is just, you know, it looks like it sounded like it was just like out of a Ren fair. But you, they did have an exterior shot of a castle, which is a Norman, more or less period appropriate castle. So good job. Yeah. And also, I'm going to give them points on names, because one of my pet peeves is when they pick names that were super uncommon in the Middle Ages. Like so Iron I'm... Gron. <laughs> right, yes, like Iron Gron. It's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> what is that? What is that? Um, but also even it's like that, uh, I think it's like the movie The Black Death, and they're like, her name is Averil? And I'm like, is it? Is it though? I feel mm. like it isn't. Like, it's not technically impossible, but it's not likely. This is a historical episode. You can't keep making up alien names. Like, stop it. No, bad, bad. We know you're used to making up alien names, but still. Right. So, yes, I appreciate Ranulph, Isabella, Hugh, Jeffrey, all solid names that would have been relatively common first names for English nobility in the early 13th century. Yeah. Good job. 
In fact, there's a, there are a couple, there's a, there is a Randolph or two who's involved at some point in the, uh, revolt in the Barons revolt or something. And, you know, there's, uh, these are all, these are all kind of nice, solid, attested names. Good job. I wonder, I wonder, uh, whose side Randolph will take for more than five minutes in that complex. <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I think there actually might be a Randolph who is an ally of King John and also a Randolph who is an enemy of King John. So maybe that's the problem. Amazing. Maybe they're just conflating the two <laughs> Randolphs. The name Fitzwilliam is also, would be a valid Norman surname. And in fact, the prefix Fitz is particularly an Anglo-Norman prefix. However, it's not associated with a particular prominent noble family of this era, but it is a name that at least is plausible. All right. So sure. I'll give him that. And while Jeffrey DeLisi is not a specific person, the DeLisi family is a real Anglo-Norman noble family that would have been prominent in this period. All right. So good job go. in general of clearly they're not real people per se, oh, but they, but... yeah, but they picked a set of names at which I think do a good job of placing them in this context. They're not real, but they're realistic. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is fine if you don't necessarily want to have the burden in some ways of having to connect them to real life, you know, human beings that you could technically know something about. Yeah. I think it's a valid choice to just have them be basically made up people that, that have a realistically chosen name. Yeah. So good job. All right. Better than they did in say, oh, but is that, it's, well, I was going to say actually the, uh, the movie A Night Before Christmas. Oh, yes, that. <laughs> Which like lists the names and it's like Dalton and I'm like, uh, no, no, this is the 14th century. It's not a frat house. Yeah, no, this is, this is medieval times. It's not Archie comics. <laughs> right. So yeah, so you know, good job on that. More or uh, less, less of a good job is the Iron Maiden and uh, to a lesser extent the boiling oil. So first of all, I will just note. The application of torture in the Middle Ages is far less just casual and chill than it tends to be presented in most modern media, including this one. So you really don't have a just, I'm bored and this guy seems like he's not on the up and up, let's torture him as dinner entertainment. Yeah. It's not really a thing. Not a thing. That's that's more of a that's more of a Roman during the reigns of the crazier emperors kind of a shtick. Right. That's yes. that's that's like the kind of thing that Caligula or Commodus. Yeah. Not yes. not King John. No. It's like there 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 are rules. These there are specific judicial situations in which torture can be applied. I'm bored during dinner and I don't like this guy isn't one of them. Right. And in general, you know, that torture, you know, certainly not condoning torture, obviously, and under any circumstances, but that it is a legal procedure and not just a kind of act of sadism that is uh, applied just randomly, essentially. Yeah, it's like, it's like, we suspect you of being a Jew. Confess, confess. Right. And there are like specific situations in which in order to obtain a confession, that, that potentially being one of them in the uh, 15th century of the Iberian Peninsula, that you could in fact torture somebody, but uh -huh. this is not. There's also literally zero evidence whatsoever of the actual existence or use of the Iron Maiden in the Middle Ages. The earliest references to it are in the 19th century and y'all need to stop putting it in movies. Uh, 
Like, yeah. All right. There's that. Boiling oil is a little bit more valid in that it was occasionally used uh, both against attackers during siege warfare and as an execution method under specific circumstances. So certain kinds of murder, sorcery, and counterfeiting. However, in both cases, boiling in water was at least as common, and especially during siege warfare, that boiling water will do the trick enough and the water is much cheaper than the oil. So like... True. There's not really a good reason to do boiling oil unless you're like really short on water or stuff for some reason. Yeah. But again, if it is used as an execution method, which is something that is attested, it had to, you know, like involve a trial. Yes. You don't just like grab somebody and say, I am going to boil him in oil. You like have a trial and you determine if he's guilty of a crime because they had law back then. Yeah. So again, it's certainly not saying that this like unpleasant form of capital punishment is acceptable, but worth noting that it's like not applied randomly. Definitely not. Not not like arbitrarily like, like oh, I'm just gonna, it's like, let's kill someone for entertainment. Yeah. And there's just, there's a lot of that. The one thing I will say in favor of it in this particular serial is that the person who mostly seems to be doing that is King John, who is in fact a robot being controlled by the master and not actually a real medieval king. Yes. And and the master's explicit goal is to make King John look bad. Right. So I do so. kind of like the idea that he's making him look bad by making him into this basically false stereotype of what people imagine medieval kings were like. Yeah, that like it's it's like okay, let's take King John, but make him Commodus. Exactly, and then that is like okay. So then is Randolph supposed to just be reacting against that? In which case, I feel like his reaction should be a little bit more extreme in terms yeah. of like this is obviously like this is not how we do yeah like murdering like brutally murdering a member of the nobility without trial a member of Randolph's some, family no less. yeah a member of his family like that's not starting to dither and being a little uncomfortable about this situation that's like immediate like no fuck this guy yeah so, uh, yeah, I think his reaction is, like, a little bit more measured than it should be in a medieval reality, but... Oh, absolutely. I will give them that uh, this is supposed to be a King John who is, like, actively way, way worse than any real medieval king. Yeah. Then there is, of course, the, the titular King's Demons. I do rather like that... In the 13th century, in contrary to popular belief, right, most of the witch persecutions are really a 15th and later century and later phenomenon and really not particularly a medieval phenomenon. But to the extent that there is discussion about sorcery and demonology and magic as a bad thing in the 13th century, it would mostly actually be talking about men. Yeah as being the ones who, you know, are educated enough to be medical or to be magical practitioners in the way magic is often understood. Yeah. And, and, you know, appearing out of thin air in full view of the entire court, yeah, that's kind of somewhat magical. That's like a fair, yeah. a fair assumption. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Kind of, you know, legit that this is a cause for concern. I also appreciate the connection in particular to King John, who, in addition to having had some troubles with the papacy, which I'll talk about in a moment, yeah. was apparently, <laughs> apparently also had a bit of a reputation for occasional blasphemy, and there are Antivan legends claiming that the whole family descended from a diabolical fairy named Melusine. Yeah. 
So I think it actually does a relatively good job in the way it talks about demons and sorcery, with the one possible exception to that being the reference to Lilith, who would have been a very well-known figure in Jewish demonology at this time, but is not attested specifically in Christian sources until later. And in England in particular, I think it's really only like coming to be a pop, she's only really a popular figure in demonology in like the 19th century. So there's no particular reason to think that she would have been the figure who would quickly come to mind for a 13th century king. But hey, again, he's not actually a 13th century king. He's just the master. The master doesn't know any medieval history. Yeah. So. That's, yeah. The master, the master, like, I feel like seems to have conflated Caligula with King John in his mind. Yes. Yes. But then again, also, the master is very deliberately, like, trying to make John so awful, essentially, that, and I'll talk more about the Magna Carta in a moment, but essentially that there would be no possibility, right, of there being, like, a compromise ever. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, just a guy that they have to stop. Yeah, that they would just, like, have to overthrow him because he's so horrible. And so I think it is interesting that you can make an argument for the fact that, well, all of the things that John does and says, which seem really not actually medieval, are because he's not. Yep. Yeah. So I'll, I, I will give it that. I will also give it the Crusader's Oath because a lot of the plot hangs yes. on this oath. So I'm very glad to say it was indeed something that happened. It is somewhat questionable if John ever really intended to go on crusade, and he did not go on crusade, but he did certainly take this oath where he said he would go on crusade. In his defense, he died before he could go on crusade, so whether or not he wanted to... I mean, and there was a revolt, like... Yeah, Yeah. I mean, there was a revolt and then he died, like, you know, fine. But I wanted to also talk a little bit about the background for uh, King John's crusading oath which is his troubles with the papacy, which went back to the year 1209, where Pope Innocent III, and uh, I spend a lot of time in my everyday life talking about Pope Innocent III, (laughs) Uh, because the thing that I would say is one of the really most important elements of his papacy was that he presided over the Fourth Lateran Council, which came up with regulations on effectively everything. It is the first written regulation uh, encouraging kings to basically adopt the Jewish a Jewish badge law so requiring Jews to wear some ah. kind of distinguishing marker on their clothing that's fourth lateran council oh fun. um yeah fourth lateran council is also the moment in which they actually started requiring yearly confession basically as a way of kind of making sure that people weren't secret heretics ah as a way of kind of having more control basically over your average parishioner they have to like show up once a year and you have to like make sure that they don't believe anything they're not supposed to fun yeah and so it is this really really extensive set of regulations on a really wide array of topics if you ever basically want to know what the church thinks about pretty much anything the fourth lateran council is often a good starting place in terms of you know what those regulations might look like in the 13th century he's like the justinian of church law yeah basically yeah, or one of one of the Justinians of church law. I feel like oh, you know, Gregory fair. the Knight that his decretals might try to claim that as well. But yeah, but he's uh, he's definitely an important figure in the history of the development of canon law. And he ends up in 1209 excommunicating John over surprise a debate about who gets to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ah, uh, I gotta love investiture controversies. They're mm-hmm. just they're just so you'd think they'd learn. 
but they you would don't. Think, you'd think nobody ever learns. No one ever learns. So the excommunication goes on. England is placed under interdict. So basically that means, you know, when the king is excommunicated, that means that at least in theory, like you can't, uh, like you can't have mass. Nobody can take communion. Like there's all of these things that at least officially, and you know, there's probably some bishops and other people Mm -hmm. who are kind of doing things on the side. But in terms of at least what you are officially allowed to do, basically you, basically kind of sacraments are suspended in the kingdom because the king is excommunicated. Oof. Yeah. So it's something that is positioned really well, potentially, to uh, get the king to maybe start listening to you because his subjects aren't going to be thrilled that these sacraments are denied to them. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. And he also, even in 1212, goes so far as to announce that John is not, in fact, a legally valid king, which is also not a great position to be in as the king. Yeah, that's... So at this uh, point... that's, That's like... The next step is telling the French to invade <laughs> and depose it. Yeah, pretty much. So at this point, John gives up, which you can't totally blame him for. Uh-huh. So he allows this man, Stephen Langton, to be made the Archbishop of Canterbury and as an added effort to sweeten the deal, gives Ireland and England to the Pope as a fief. Okay. Yeah. So yes, England and Ireland are technically papal fiefs. And I bring this up because it's going to come back. Wow. All right. Uh (laughs) So he swears this crusader oath, which might have signaled a serious intent to go on crusade, but is also very possibly another way to make sure the Pope is going to stay on his side in various conflicts uh, with France in particular. When was the Fifth Crusade? It was... 1217? Am I making that up? Is is it later? Trying to remember, because there are so many I'm looking it up. I know the fourth was before this, because that's the one where they sat Constantinople, which is a whole bag of worms in its own, right? Yes. Yeah, that's that's a crusade. That's a real mess, right? It's a 1204 one in which they just are like, eh, we're going to sat Constantinople instead. Thumbs up. Okay, the fifth crusade, 1217 to 1221. So, yes. so John so could have, alive, maybe, yeah. he, maybe he would have gone. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I promised to go on this thing and then he dies before he can, but maybe if he would have, right. if he, he hadn't died. Right. Yeah. So I it's, think, it's I certainly think certainly very possible. I think death excuses you from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and also not that, you know, I also don't think crusading is an especially good thing to do. Oh, so absolutely. I don't even necessarily not. Absolutely think it's a bad not, thing, even but... if he didn't want to go on crusade. That might have been one of his better qualities if he was faking it the whole time. It's from, yeah. my, from my perspective, but well, you know. true. But still, like it's not something anyone's going to blame him for. <laughs> is dying, right. <laughs> right? Yes, no, absolutely. That that definitely gets you out of your crusader oath. But <laughs> you know, but I think it also does put you in an uncomfortable position if you you know do uh, buy into the whole you know Catholic system of uh, how you two or don't get to go to heaven and that had he gone on crusade he might have had some nice sins wiped out that uh, he never had the opportunity because i don't think just taking the vow counts i think you gotta go yeah i mean i wouldn't know i'm no theologian my girlfriend is but she's she's a lutheran so Mm. that does not count right yeah so yeah so i think i think uh well according to this john uh, according to most catholics john is probably still burning in hell (laughs) <laughs> but I'm Jewish, so I have no I have no skin in this game. Uh it's 
let's let's ask Dante. Did Dante Dante didn't um, Dante didn't mention King John? Uh, I don't think he mentioned him at all. Now, I mean, why would he? Yeah, <laughs> he's, I mean, he's he... he's too busy. He's too busy talking about like people he personally knew. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Popes he there, personally yeah, no, knew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. The the popes really come in for. It. I mean, also like England, as as I talk about all the time on this podcast, we'll talk about more in a moment. England is so much less important than everybody thinks England is in the Middle yeah. Ages. Yeah. I just don't think Dante gave a shit about what had happened in England a century oh, before. Absolutely not. There no. is actually one reference, which is Bertrand de Born, the troubadour, is in hell for specifically his role in encouraging John's older brother Henry to revolt against their father. Ah, okay, but no, but no word on Henry the Young himself. No word on Henry. No word on his father Henry. Uh, no word on their mother Eleanor. No word on Richard or John, who are also involved in rebellions at various times. In addition to their other problems at later dates, just this one rando who's associated with them. Yeah, and I think probably, honestly, I think he genuinely, I think, did not give a shit about what's happening in England. I think he cared about Bertrand de Born because Bertrand de Born's a poet. Well, that tracks. That sounds because like... he has a lot of poets who pop up at various yeah. pl- in various places, like Virgil. He cares about poets because he's a yeah yeah exactly because he cares about poets because he's a poet. Yeah, Virgil, one of the three main characters. Right. Yeah, you know. But yeah, so I think that's really what it is: is that he thought Bertrand de Born was interesting enough to get mentioned because he liked his poetry, probably. <laughs> And then just also knew this, like, one other historical fact about him. But yeah, he sure. has no interest in, like, English kings, really. Yeah. the reason fair. Yeah. Now, Doctor Who uh, focuses on England a lot, but that's more because yes. it's an English show. So we'll give them right. that. Right. And the, I mean, you know, and I will say the focus on England is very much something that comes up in really, you know, Anglo-American contexts and is obviously very linked to the combined, uh, you know, factors that obviously England sees it's, you know, England obviously cares about their own history, which I suppose they have a right to do. Uh And America, despite being a nation of immigrants from many different places, tends to emphasize its connection to England to a greater degree for a lot of reasons that I can't get into all of the politics around that at the moment. Uh, Cough, white supremacy, cough. But yeah, but that there is, I would say, in all of that, this annoying tendency to typically assume that because there is this like Anglo-American narrative about the importance of England, that then that kind of, it moves often from an assumption of, well, it's important in our history to a sense of it being important in world history. Like there are even like things about, like there's so much things written about the Magna Carta, for example, that are like, this is a crucial world document to which I'm always like, is it though? Is it? Yeah. 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 Does that, does that that take us into the Historia ad Veritas? Yes, it does. The... Magna Carta, John and the Magna Carta, which it's time for <laughs> me to spend some time talking about, and in now, particular talking about how nobody knows what the Magna Carta is. I will, I will peel back the curtain here. So Sarah has, sends out a document of notes to the co-host at the, at, at the start of every episode. She's got eight pages of notes on this episode, and two of them are just entirely quotes from the Magna Carta. 
Yes, which I will not <laughs> inflict in there full on the entire audience for this podcast, but it certainly does reflect that I have a lot of thoughts about the Magna Carta and about the way it gets portrayed in modern society. And I, you know, not just in modern media, but in modern like legal discourse more broadly. Yes. Magna Carta literally means Great Charters. The full name is actually the Great Charter of Liberties. And it was signed in 1215 in response to a military revolt by many of John's most powerful barons. The Archbishop of Canterbury, John's old friend, frenemy, just enemy, whatever, <laughs> Stephen Langton, also plays an important role of this. He ultimately essentially is one of the figures who kind of acts as something of a mediator and is responsible basically for transforming the somewhat more amorphous demands of a group of angry barons into a concrete and coherent single charter, which John then signs. The first comment I want to make is that it's really important that we don't overestimate the Magna Carta and what is included in the Magna Carta. First and foremost, it is really about limiting the king's power. But that does not mean that it is a document about social equality. It does not mean it is a document about human rights. That does not mean it is a document about democracy, as I will oh, discuss no. more later. It is essentially a set of provisions that are focused for the most part on a combination of the liberties of the church and the liberties of barons and other wealthy landowners. So in particular, things like restricting the king's ability to arbitrarily tax the barons. So again, nothing to do with equality, nothing to do with democracy. It's about specifically a group of wealthy elites asserting their power versus another wealthy elite, the king. I just, I just realized something. At the very start of this serial, John is trying to basically arbitrarily demand mm -hmm. more from Ranulf. Uh-huh. So that's clever. I didn't pick up yeah. on that. Yeah, that is exactly the kind of thing, right, that the Magna Carta is really about. It fundamentally, in many ways, doesn't care about ordinary people. There are a couple of provisions here and there that apply more broadly, including things like emphasizing the right to a trial, including certain limitations that are broader about fees and fines of various kinds, as well as standardization of measures of wine, ale, and corn that would be potentially good for a wider swath of people. But that, yeah, fundamentally, it's about exactly this conflict that we see at the beginning, this essentially arbitrary efforts to squeeze money out of the barons to, you know, fund your own wars. And one of the things I will note is that, I mean, the, the Magna Carta has a complicated history. There's a number of provisions that are in the 1215 version that don't get included in later reissues. This is one of them. But that I will also note as a particularly uh, interesting example of this is that the Magna Carta actually does very briefly reference the Jewish population of England. It does not say, hey, the king shouldn't arbitrarily tax the Jews, which he is doing a whole lot. He's doing that all the time. Instead, it, it's it about how... Mm -hmm. It oh, lays out rules for how to arbitrarily tax the Jews. Exactly. It lays out <laughs> basically rights or liberties that the barons should have against the Jews. That So for example, if you borrow money at interest from a Jewish lender, then like the interest just stops uh, while your heir is coming of age. It also says that, you know, your wife doesn't have to repay the debt, essentially, that uh, she can, uh, that basically they can like 
like take all of this money essentially out of the estate for providing for the wife and providing for their children that then don't actually have to be used or that are not eligible to, to be confiscated toward paying back Jewish creditors. <laughs> this is very, very fundamentally, first of all, it certainly is not, again, about protecting everybody's rights, the rights no. of, you know, these Jewish moneylenders, you know, who lent capital and, you know, expect to be repaid with interest, which like, that's how money lending works, sorry. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you wouldn't lend money, right? Because right. why would you lend money if you're just going to like maybe get that money back or maybe not in three months uh-huh. or four years? Uh, so, you know, if somebody's going to lend money professionally, then you need to charge interest to make it worth it. So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Jews are included here is very much linked to the fact that Jews are associated with the crown that uh, there are a lot of limitations that exist already on uh, the ability of lords to tax Jews themselves, that Jews uh, tend to kind of pay most of their taxation directly to the crown, and that uh, the crown is also often very invested because of that, because they can squeeze a lot of taxation out of the Jews, they're often invested in, say, making sure that their wealthy barons repay their loans to the Jews because then the Jews can pay you. So it's not altruistic on anybody's part, but that this is, so that this is really just essentially another way to undermine the crown's power by limiting the crown's ability to support uh, Jews' efforts to collect on debts from recalcitrant uh, from recalcitrant borrowers but yeah it's essentially you know just to really kind of emphasize the fact that uh yeah no we're not interested in like protecting a vulnerable group of people here we are basically protecting the highest level of elites is the vast majority of what the magna carta is doing pretty much so how did john feel about the magna carta deep in his heart yeah Well, I I think the doctor's uh, being a bit of an idealist. Uh, Oh, yes. I think think he and Tegan both have a point. Like, because I feel like John wasn't as bad as, like, uh, the modern reputation of him. And the doctor is right in that respect. Mm -hmm. But also, that doesn't mean he was a good guy. (laughs) Right. And while... uh you know, could he have brutally repressed the rebellion? Maybe, I don't know, but there's pragmatic reasons for this have been, this being the better solution yeah. in addition like, to just, I thought like, it would be nice to give them this thing. Yeah, points for points for not wanting a brutal civil war. Like, points for not, right. points for uh, trying to avoid that. But, but even so, like, that's that's pragmatism. That's not the goodness of exactly. his heart. Exactly. And especially when obviously he's facing various challenges from France, which the barons will eventually overtly take advantage of. Yeah. There's a lot of good reasons for him to want to make some kind of concessions or at least appear for a period of time like he's willing to make certain yeah. concessions. The, the barons do ultimately like straight up invite Louis VIII of France to invade. Yes. And then John dies and then they say to Louis, oh, we don't need you anymore. And Louis's like, really? <laughs> yeah. You're just yeah. gonna <laughs> toss me to the side like that? Okay, what? Right. And to some extent, right, signing the Magna Carta is about basically kind of trying to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah. It obviously, though, didn't work. And part of the reason it didn't work is because uh, arguably nobody's really acting in good faith at the time that the Magna Carta is signed. 
So one of the big problems is this clause, which I will not inflict a full reading of the entire clause on everybody, despite the fact that I do have it all written out in my notes, is basically that it boils down to the barons get to pick 25 of their own number, whose job it is to basically keep an eye on the king and make sure he doesn't break any of the agreements that he made in the Magna Carta. Yeah. The question often in particular of whether agreements are broken is potentially very much in the eye of the beholder. And uh-huh. in particular, they seem to have probably deliberately selected as the 25 barons, people who are very, very closely associated with the rebellion and very possibly looking for an excuse. Yeah. John, moreover, absolutely gives them one. True. Very quickly. In July. Yeah. That in So like a month after he signs the Magna Carta, he does, one of the things that you're not supposed, that he's explicitly not supposed to do is try to find a way to get out of having, of continuing to enforce the Magna Carta, which is exactly what he does. That he like writes to the Pope and he's like, oh, I'm really concerned that this charter undermines your rights, Pope Innocent the Third, <laughs> because you are the feudal ruler of England. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So then he gets the Pope to write him to say, you know, under no circumstances, I forbid you to observe the Magna Carta. And if you do, I will excommunicate you. (laughs) This is, I love this. This is great. Oh boy. Also adore that because of all of this, after that whole bullshit about appointing Stephen Langton to be Archbishop of Canterbury, because of his role in the Magna Carta, the Pope then kicks him out and removes him from office as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, so juicy. I I love it. It's great. It's great. It's like one of these many ways in which I feel like the history is actually so much more weird and interesting than the media that gets invented based on it in some ways that like, which I'll talk about more in a bit. Yeah. So while John, as we said, right, he'll die in 26, in 2016, whoops, 1216. And John lived a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. John will die in 1216. And uh, the Govern, I think it's basically the regency government of his son, Henry, who is still a minor, Henry III, will actually basically reissue the Magna Carta, but with some clauses removed. And the Magna Carta does basically more or less stay basically part of English law, although not necessarily in entirely the form that it has here, that a number, that some of these specific clauses are removed. Yeah. The Council of Barons that, that like, were the, the, the 25 barons that that is kind of the first form of the thing that eventually becomes parliament but right so that then kind of gets into this question right is this the foundation of parliamentary democracy and on the one hand there are those elements right there are things that one can appeal to in the magna carta saying look we have this example of Eng- of an english legal text from the 13th century that justifies the idea of parliamentary democracy it has that clause although that was one of the clauses that uh, did not make it into later incarnations when the magna carta got reissued because it is a very uh, problematic element from the perspective of kings 
but you can still more broadly use even things that were kept in as arguments against, say, the idea of the divine right of kings, that yes. the that it is fundamentally about, right, limiting the king's power, even if only really in favor of uh, these other elites. Yeah. And, and it's and it's certainly not the first like arrangement of this sort. I would like to, right. to bring up as an example, the Senate of Rome. Yes. Yeah. The Roman the Senate Republic. Of Rome. Yeah. England isn't that special, everybody. There are charters that are attempting to delineate the liberties of lords and of urban governments in ways that fundamentally limit the power of the king all over Europe. I can name 12 of them in Catalonia alone. Like yeah. it it is it is like a step in like the overall legal framework of what is English law today, which right. does which does echo in uh the in the systems of former colonies of the British Empire, mm-hmm. like America, which is so America will there is a that connection, but it is not like the most important turning point in world history development of democracy like, right democracy w- because yeah democracy was a thing like like Athens yeah. had one it didn't really work that great but they had one um, but also this isn't democracy it's at really all. not this is this is oligarchy pure, pure and simple like, yeah it's it's just an oligarchy like yeah exactly yes it's the um, senate of rome all over again <laughs> yeah it's just an oligarchy it's not a, you know and it's, it's also like you know only the barons right are you know it's the barons themselves who are choosing the people who have this fundamental kind of ability to uh, kind of observe the king and check the king's power it's not anybody else who has any ability to help choose these people or be part of that group it's only about the barons And so this idea of it as being this document which is protecting individual rights in some way is really, it's a myth. It's certainly a myth that we still have today in a lot of ways. It's a 17th and 18th century myth that I think arguably reflects a lot more of the ideology that's being developed at the time, which sure, they have old things that they can read to justify it. But it's also to some extent just, you know, says something about ideologies that are becoming popular in that particular period of time. And that I don't think that there's really much reason to say that if you hadn't had certainly this one document, that nobody would have come up with the idea of a democracy in the 18th century, in the 17th or 18th century. Yeah, it's not a, it's not that new of an idea, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah. And this is not an example of the idea you think it is. Right. Like, you have, a, you have a better argument for saying, let's, like, get rid of Plato's Republic. Yeah. Like, like King John is, is, at this point, is like, well, no, there's even better examples than King John, like, of, mm-hmm. of like, curtailing royal power. Like, going back to Rome, Tarquinius Superbus. Or, yeah. or, or jumping ahead in, in English history, Charles I. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they actually like, you killed could, him. <laughs> yeah. The glorious Re- and then like the glorious revolution, like that's really where you know you create something that is a lot more like a parliamentary democracy. And so, yeah. like, why isn't that the focus? Right. Like, why isn't the focus on preventing the glorious revolution? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It's it's a, it is really an odd thing to make the focus 
Like this is this yeah. This is a step. It's not a turning point. It's a step. It's not a turning point. It's arguably not really that big of a step in some ways, and it is also yeah. I think part of this really fundamental narrative as well of a kind of Anglo-American exceptionalism that is trying to claim that there is something special and unique about this particular culture kind of in scare quotes uh, <laughs> that like produced democracy and gave democracy to the world oh, and uh, that and you know that we then can like spread democracy and American values all over the world and colonialism woo oh, ooh, um mm. You know, I I think it is, I think this is all really connected, right? That the idea of like Anglo-American exceptionalism and then of justifying kind of Anglo-American quote, civilizing missions, I think is all bound up in this, in these efforts to claim that there is this root of democracy in the 13th century when there are better examples in the 13th century of democracy. Like there's better examples of like urban governing councils that are actually Uh like somewhat democratic and not obviously as extensive as we would understand today, right? In terms of who gets to participate in a democracy. But England England isn't special. You're not special. No. That's that's my argument for today is that England isn't special. Yeah, like go go look at a like urban go look at like urban charters from uh, the Iberian Peninsula in southern France in the like 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, and uh, you arguably have there better statements of the liberties of at least some group of people they preserve against the king. Yeah, it's yeah yeah i don't have anything more to say (laughs) yeah so that's my rant for today about how the magna carta actually just ruined the world by allowing england and the british and americans to justify how fucking special they think they are oh boy so with that we can go to the fabula nostra where we talk about a film or tv show inspired by this one and, and I'll go ahead and go first and just say, I, I want the thing that's actually about the Magna Carta, which is a like weird political intrigue story where everybody's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fun. Like I, yeah. I would watch that. And where you kind of like, I think even like you could do it in such a way where you get into the fact that like they're doing all of this and they have all this rebellion, like they fundamentally do not give a shit about people who are below their own elite level in society. You know, they certainly don't give a shit about the Jew, about the, you know, marginalized Jewish community, you know, not even to talk about the fact that like women don't get to, you know, do shit. I mean, the only things that you have here and there is things here and there, like women can't be like forced into marriage in certain circumstances, but it's really more about like protecting your property as a baron uh-huh. than it is about like women you know, giving a shit about human women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I once again forgot the Fabula Nostra was a section. So I'm I'm spinning off the top of the cup of my I'm not even wearing sleeves. I think I would I mean, as the Doctor Who epi- expert, I feel like I should spin a Doctor Who episode. So maybe like an episode where they in, instead of like going to the signing of the Magna Carta, they go to like an event that is important. <laughs> like something that <laughs> Something that's more foundational than the Magna Carta. I was going to say the Glorious Revolution, but they've done that. Mm. Um, I would say I would say the uh, execution of Charles I, but I'm pretty sure they've done that too. So let's go to an event that kind of 
echoes the Magna Carta, but like further back. Let's go mm-hmm. to the the overthrow of Tarquinius Superbus and trying to figure out what form the Roman Senate should take. And uh, all the elites who become senators are still kind of dicks. And, and it's still not like the foundation of democracy by any means. And right. like, I don't know what the, what the doctor would do in all of that, but just like, she's there. Um, uh-huh. This is an adventure that they're having. Something happens. Maybe there's aliens. There's probably aliens. There's always aliens. Yeah, there's probably uh, aliens. They haven't done a, they haven't done a, like a, a fully historical episode that has no, that has no supernatural elements since, well, since Black Orchid in 82, which is the one where they go to 1925 and the doctor plays cricket. <laughs> but yeah, something, something around, something around like the, trying to figure out what form Rome should be without a king. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that I could see being interesting, and I don't remember the date on this offhand, but the city of London does eventually end up uh, claiming certain liberties relative to the king at some point in the Middle Ages. Well, as I said, I don't know the exact date off the top of my head. And that could be really interesting as well. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if the producers of Doctor Who insisted on me doing an English story because budget, I don't know, then yeah, figuring out like how that came about yeah. would be interesting. There, yeah, there might be aliens yeah. involved. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because like London is actually really interesting in English history because there all of the, there are all of these points in which uh, the in which London just like straight up there's somebody who's in charge and they're like who's king and they're like not pleased with him. They're just like yeah, they're just like you can't come in to London, uh-huh. <laughs> which uh, is hilarious. They uh, let's see, they pulled that on King Stephen once or twice. So I yeah, so I mean, it has to be before then, but otherwise I'm not sure when that about yeah so i think kind of seeing the like development certainly that they're as i said i don't know what the kind of crucial dates are but seeing the kind of development of uh, the london city government and uh, the like things that they claim relative to the king i think could be really interesting and i bet you can make an argument for that actually being more crucial to the development of democracy than the magna carta oh sure yeah yeah so at this point, I think we can move into our estimatio or rating of the serial on a scale from one to five based on whatever completely subjective criteria we see fit. So Elizabeth, do you want to go first for this one since I burst in with my angry comments about the Magna Carta? <laughs> I think I'm going to give this one 4.5. Uh, okay. It's, it's, a good, it's a good serial. It's fun. Yeah. I enjoyed watching it. They get far more accurate than they did did in say the Time Warrior. Uh, True. With Iron Gron. Uh, <laughs> we know not only a year but a date, a yep. precise date, a precise date, an event that's centered around that precise date. And um, it really happened in everything. It really did. And poking, ho- I, I enjoy the stories where it's like, oh, well, I know what happened at this point, so I know what's wrong with these circumstances i love stories like that i will take points off for the iron maiden and i also think it should have been the monk and not the master but really those Mm. are my only real complaints like like otherwise it's a and also the doctor has maybe too high an opinion of king john 
But otherwise, right. like otherwise, this is a fine cereal. I really yeah. loved it. I I'll give it a four point five out of five. I did really enjoy it. I think I'm gonna do a four, which is mostly I would say a combination of. Uh, it does feel like it ends really abruptly. It uh, it felt maybe like they were a bit rushed in terms of get of making it two episodes. We have uh, you know typically watched That's... four. That's, episode serials that is a fair point yeah they they did have a lot to they they managed to pack a lot into two episodes frankly yeah yeah no they definitely did but yeah but something at like the end just felt a little like abrupt and rushed i would say so it, it felt like i could have used maybe one more episode and uh then otherwise i'm mostly just taking points off for the standard myth of everybody thinking the magna carta is way more important and broad-reaching than it actually is fair i know they're not the only ones to do it i just get i just get more sick of it every time that is a fair point but if you are going to watch something that idealizes the magna carta this at least i think is a better like does a lot better than say the 2010 robin hood film where robin i guess invents the magna carta and also the magna carta is like the u.s declaration of independence plus like bill of rights so you know oh Oh, I, I had managed to forget that. Forget that. Why would you uh-huh, make me dad. remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the uh, I'm at the sad point where I'm trying to figure out uh, what movies to inflict on my students for my medieval movies course oh. next semester. So, oh, you get to teach that? Oh, that's awesome. I do. I do. Yeah, it's an. You get to, I, you get really to claim all of this as research. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, and it's uh, it's a really fun course, and I need to find a way to. I need to not do what I did the first time I taught it last year, where the way I structured it, I had three weeks in a row where I had to watch three-hour movies that I hated. Yeah, no, that's a. Uh maybe not the best uh, way to go about that <laughs> yeah so like i might still keep in those movies but i need to space them out a bit more i can't do that to myself uh, no yeah no that's there is something about there, there is something about uh cruelty to the self <laughs> right yeah so yeah you yeah it was like braveheart el Cid, and kingdom of heaven like all oh no i was just so angry no for, like, for, like the first month of the semester <laughs> Sarah, why would you do that to yourself? I know, I know. I and mean, thematically, it made sense, right? Because I could, like, I started with Braveheart and, like, could talk yeah, about, like, like, violence. And then I was like, and then I'm going to do, like, a Conquista and Crusade. Violence, bad movie making. You can you can get it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so thematically, and I could talk about how Elsa is fascist propaganda. Uh-huh. Uh, which is my favorite thing to talk about with Elsid about how this like American studio decided they were fine like repeating the propaganda of the Francoist government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that's like I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it's like three movies that just made me furious that I had to do and I had so that I had to do three weeks in a row. So I need to like make some adjustments so I don't drive myself insane. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Anyway, I I am like loopy today. Um, so That's fair. It's one of those days. Yeah. And you'll all know this in the like when I release this episode like three months later. <laughs> yep. Yep. Everybody will figure it out. You'll know exactly which day we're recording this on. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, so Elizabeth, thank you for coming back and talking That's about all- Dr. Who with me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for bearing with me and uh, figuring out my new audio setup in my new room in my new house. Uh, it's 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 all new. Exciting. 
Yeah. So are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? I mean, in theory, uh, I have a Twitter. I don't tweet often, but I'm at Lizzie Strider. It's mostly retweets of memes, but I do still technically have uh, the project that I've mentioned in prior episodes where I'd like to do mm-hmm. kind of the reverse media evil, where instead of an expert on the medieval period, like doing different things about medieval times with, with the rotating co-hosts, I want to have a show where it's Doctor Who and then experts about the periods they go to to talk to about each episode. It hasn't gotten off the ground yet because I don't know anyone. Literally, the only expert I have is Sarah. And so that's <laughs> just this. Uh, so someday I'd like to do that, but I need people to like contact me first. So like, yeah, if you're like an expert on history or science, particularly if it's not medieval history, I have a medievalist plus myself. Um, You need other people. I need other people. Like if I could get like, uh, I don't know, an archeologist for the the first episode, they go back to the stone age. Right, yeah. Like stuff like that. That would be, that would be awesome. But yeah, that's a, that's a project I'd like to get off the ground. Doesn't even have a name yet, but it's, it's, it's a thing. Otherwise, I don't have much presence in the world. <laughs> All right. Well, we can find you in the Media Evil Facebook group, which everybody That's should true. join. Yeah, I, I, I live there. <laughs> yes. It's, but, it's um, one of the few reasons I still have Facebook. <laughs> same to us all. Uh, <laughs> But yes, you can you can find the podcast there. You can also find us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. Please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you again, Elizabeth, for joining me. It's always great to be here. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Oh, <sighs> <sighs>